Good morning, everyone. While our kids are headed out to KOM, let me invite you to take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 4. We're going to be continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark. If you are visiting with us, welcome. Uh, My name is Thomas. It's my great joy to serve as the teaching pastor here and and to kind of continue in this series that we're going to be in for quite some time. Um, But we're giving attention to the Word of the Lord through the Gospel of Mark, which is Mark's account to us of the life of Jesus. Uh, Peter is the apostolic source behind it, and as we've seen from the very beginning, the goal of Mark's gospel is that we would see Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what Mark wants us to do. He wants us to see Jesus. He wants us then to, in response, worship Jesus. And over the past several weeks, we've been looking into and seeing the increase in opposition to Jesus. In Mark's gospel, Mark arranges it in terms of geography. It begins in Galilee with great fanfare and popularity. Uh, But what Mark has been showing us as you transition into chapter 3 is increasing opposition to Jesus, which came to a head last week with the ultimate rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders and even opposition against Jesus from within his own family. This is significant because what this leads to then, as we'll see this morning, is a change in sort of the nature of Jesus' ministry. He's been proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's been going from town to town preaching. And there's going to be a shift this morning in the way he teaches. So if you've got your outline, it'd be helpful for you to take a look there. Uh, By way of introduction, uh, we're going to be thinking a little bit about the kingdom of Messiah. That's what we're going to be looking at the next, this week and next week, focusing on parables that Jesus was using to teach his disciples about the nature of the kingdom and about what was happening in the kingdom program. So let's just review a little bit some things that we talked about from a few weeks ago. In the most basic sense, the kingdom of God, and this is from Dwight Pentecost, he's helpful here, he says that the kingdom of God should be understood as the rule of God over his creation. That's sort of the big picture understanding of the kingdom of God. And although God's rule is eternal, He administers his rule on earth through chosen representatives. And you see that really unfold throughout Scripture and throughout the various ages, the ways that God administers his rule on earth. Pentecost from his book, Thy Kingdom Come, I think he's helpful here. He says there's an eternal aspect as well as a temporal aspect. It has a universal nature as well as a local nature. Or there's an immediate sense of the kingdom in which God rules directly, and a mediated sense of the kingdom in which God rules indirectly through appointed representatives. Much of what you see in Scripture is focused in on the rule of God in and through the nation of Israel. What you see, though, as the scriptural narrative progresses, though, is the collapse of Israel's kingdom. And yet there's still the promise that God is going to ultimately rule Israel through a chosen representative. And that goes all the way back to some promises that God made to David in 1 Chronicles 17 and also in 2 Samuel 7. We refer to this as the Davidic covenant. One of David's descendants would be king over Israel forever. And the prophets unpack that he's going to not just rule Israel, he's going to be ruler of all nations. The prophets anticipated the coming of this anointed one, or Messiah, to establish Israel in their land and to rule over all the nations. Two passages there that help illustrate this for us. From Ezekiel 37, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. 
They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It should be an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in their land, multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. This is what the prophets are anticipating. This is what is being read and spoken of in the synagogues. Also, verses like what you see in Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations, and he shall rule, or his rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is what they're looking forward to in the intertestamental period. This is their hope while they're being ruled by various Gentile nations. Even as they gain a bit of independence again under the Maccabees until the Romans come. And at the time of Jesus, this is the great future hope of Israel. They're anticipating this coming king. Jesus then, or John first, shows up, shows up and begins proclaiming a baptism of repentance in preparation that they might receive the promised king. Then Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God. And it's important that we recognize Jesus was the promised Davidic king, and the kingdom that he proclaimed was the promised messianic kingdom. Although though he calls Israel to repent in order that they would receive him as king, What we see throughout the course of his ministry is that most refuse to believe in him or the message that he proclaimed. The result then was the unveiling of an aspect of God's kingdom program which had been hidden in other ages. This is what we're going to see happen this week and next week. This mystery would be entrusted to Jesus' followers but would be hidden from those who did not believe in him. What we're going to see beginning this week and into next week is Jesus' use of parables to explain the mysteries of the kingdom. We're going to get sort of one controlling parable on the front end, and then next week we're going to look at several smaller parables that further illustrate these things about the kingdom. Here's, Here's the key point this morning. Having been rejected by Israel's religious leaders... The Lord Jesus began to teach in parables in order that his followers, his followers might gain insight into God's plans and purposes while his opponents were further hardened against him. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at a very familiar parable. And we're going to be doing so in order that we might consider both the power of God's word to accomplish his purposes as well as the importance of the receptivity that people have to the proclamation of God's words. So my encouragement to us this morning was, would be to avoid the reality that familiarity breeds contempt. We've heard the parable of the sower. Maybe you saw the felt board illustration when you were in vacation Bible school. We want to approach God's word and ask that he would give us fresh eyes to see and ears to hear. That's actually going to be the exhortation from Jesus to those who first heard this parable. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer, and let's ask that he would give that to us by the power of his Spirit. 
Father, I'm just grateful uh, to be together with your church this morning. Thank you uh, for being able to hear one another's voices. Lord, you have been so gracious and merciful to those of us who are believers here as individuals. You have rescued us from the penalty and power of our sin. But Lord, you have done that for a collective body, your church. And so our gathering this morning, Lord, you have called us together that we might be reminded of your work in the world through your church. I thank you that you have eternal purposes for your church, and we see glimpses of those eternal purposes as we gather. Father, for those who are joining with us um, online, Lord, we miss their presence. We thank you for the common grace gift of technology that allows us, allows them to be with us in spirit, if not physically with us. Father, would you just take your word now as we've already prayed and plant it deep in us that it may bear fruit. That is our desire, Lord. As the, those who heard that, the par- this parable that we're going to look at the first time, Lord, it was intended that they might understand the power of your word, that it, it bears fruit in your people. So, Father, we ask that it would do that this morning amongst us. Make us receptive, Lord. May our hearts be softened towards you. Guard us from being distracted, Lord. Guard us from the cares of the world, that we may be good soil to receive the seed of your word this morning. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a look at your outline there. We're going to work through this morning Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through verse 20. We're going to go through it in sections. And so as we come to each individual section, I'm going to read certain portions of it. What we see is, remember, Jesus is in Galilee. And I think it's helpful for us that we keep in mind what's going on and keeping in mind geography. And so I just want to show you, Jesus this morning, it begins, uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, it says, He began to teach beside the sea. And he's going to be teaching about, or he's going to be teaching using particular imagery, imagery associated with fields and seeds and sowing. And so there's several places along the Sea of Galilee where there are fields, You can literally see the Sea of Galilee from places where there would have been fields, or if you were along the sea itself, he could very easily have pointed over towards fields to give you an idea of just the geography. Here are some actual fields that, again, you can see the Sea of Galilee within the background. Alfred Edersheim, in his book, Jesus the Messiah, um, or The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he suggests that this is happening in the morning, Uh, Perhaps uh, earlier in the morning as they would have come out and gathered and a small crowd would have gathered around him. So we'll pick up our reading in chapter 4 beginning at verse 1 and we'll read verses 1 through 9 as we look at this first section associated with this parable. Again, he began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. The whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And his teaching, in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, 
growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What we see here is the beginning. This is your first bullet point there. Following his encounter with those Jerusalem scribes, what we see is Jesus begins a transition in his teaching ministry. Again, up until this point, it's not that he's never done anything with a parable before. We actually saw him speak of one last week. He used the parable as an illustration, talking about binding a strong man, that you're going to have to first bind a strong man if you're going to steal the goods from within his home or take the goods from within his home. So he's used parables before, but he's used them as illustrations. The transition now is that he is primarily teaching his public ministry is primarily focused in terms of its teaching on speaking in parables. Okay, let's talk a little bit about what a parable is. A little helpful definition here. It's the placing of one thing alongside another in order that a comparison may be made between the two. Or if you grew up in the church, maybe you heard the classic definition, it's a little story that makes a big point. Okay, that's kind of the like go-to preacher phrase about a parable. I think Stanley Toussaint from Behold the King is really good here talking about the way Jesus uses parables. He says, A parable denotes an extended comparison between nature or life and the things involving the spiritual life and God's dealings with men. What a parable is, is it's a teaching device that Jesus employs for a specific purpose. He's got a purpose in the use of the parable and in the imagery. Imagery is significant within a parable. And so in light of that, as, I'm re- as I read that section, as I read Jesus' first parable that we sometimes refer to as the parable of the sower, or others will sometimes refer to it as the parable of the soils, focusing on the reception of the seed that is sown, Jesus' first parable there, your second bullet point, it employed agricultural imagery that would have been familiar to his audience. He does this a lot. Jesus often looked for everyday examples, things familiar to the life and times of the people that he's around, in order to teach them things. And he he takes this sort of agricultural imagery or metaphor and employs it through a story, specifically focused on the work of a sower who goes out to sow seed. David Garland here in talking about this, he says the first parable, in the first parable, a sower successfully sows the seed. The success of the seed, however, depends on the soil. The parable emphasizes the disparity in the results in different soils. The basics of farming would have been familiar to these folks, and so as he begins to talk about this, they would have understood things. Now, there were different ways that sowing could be done. It was uh, somewhat common for those who had animals. You would put a pack of seed on an animal. The ground would be tilled up, and then they would cut a hole or the way the things were designed for the seed to come out, and they would go along. And sometimes, as you sowed, these examples would have been familiar to them based on where the seed would fall as it was being sown. What we have then in the parable The focus is on the success. I think a lot of times, and and it's right because there's more detail given about the different soils, but I think sometimes we focus so much, and I'm going to try not to do that this morning, but I probably will because that's where most of the content is, is on the bad soil. But really the parable is about the successful work of the sower. The sower sows the seed, and in the end, it is successful. The, The field grows. Fruit is produced. 
but there is focus placed on the different types of soil. So what we're going to have here, let's just, let's just unpack really here these types of soils. Let's talk about them, and then let's look at the results. What I want you to see with the soil, the soil, you get this description, but then the result is going to, there are going to be three verbs really associated with the negative aspects of the bad soils, but then there's also three verbs used to talk about the success of the good soil. So see even in that, looking at the results, that it's not weighted in talking about the bad soil. It gives equal treatment to the success of what happens with the seed in the good soil. Okay, so the first thing you have is there's seed that falls along the path. Think about a pathway. I mean, most of us are not farmers. We didn't grow up in farms. Maybe you hike. Maybe you've been places where you see a walking path. Um, you can go through in parts of the woods. There are walking paths around here. And what you'll see is that the ground is tamped down. It's been trampled upon, tread upon. And so the ground is, there's nothing growing there because it's very, very hard ground. That's what we need to think of when we think of the path. There's seed that falls on this hard ground. And as a result of that, then, it, it can't get underneath the surface of the dirt. It never even gets below the surface. It's sitting on the top of the surface of the ground or on the path. The result then is that the birds come and they eat it. It's devoured by birds. That's our, that's our verb that's used there, okay? The seed is devoured by birds. It's exposed out there and it, it comes and it's taken away. We're doing some farm, I say farming. We have some raised beds in our backyard, so this has been very like, it's been very real in my life. And uh, Molly loves zinnias, the flower zinnias, and she's planted some of the seeds, and they, she was making, she wanted to make sure that they get beneath the surface, because we have these, we have birds that come and dig out the zinnia seeds, and so she wants a, a bed that's full of these beautiful flowers, but the birds will come and try to take them away. So we've gotten them beneath the surface so the birds can't do that, or at least we make it work, make them work for it. If they're going to do it, I want to see them work for it, Okay. The imagery here, though, is that they don't have to work for it because the seed is simply sitting on the top layer of the ground. All right, the second kind of soil that's described is soil on rocky ground. Now, within this type of soil, it seems that there is a, a layer of soil, but it's mixed in with rock, and the soil, it isn't very deep. It isn't very deep. As a result, then, what, what, mentioned, what the, the parable mentions is that the soil comes in, it initially grows up, but the problem is there's no depth to the soil, and so it can't take root. The soil isn't deep. That there's no way for it to be rooted. And so the sun comes, and it's ultimately scorched by the sun. It's scorched by the sun. There's initial growth, but there's no depth. We had, we've had this herb garden in our backyard. I like to cook, and so I like herbs, and I like fresh herbs, and I constantly find myself driving to Kroger to buy one herb that I want to cook with. So we're really trying to grow some herbs in the backyard, and over the last couple of years, the one that's taken is our rosemary. For whatever reason, this one rosemary plant, it's this, now it looks like, the bottom of it is like this horrible tree knot, but it's got rosemary growing out of it. It's really good rosemary. And I was wondering how in the world this thing has survived winter after winter. And we were doing some digging, and I found a root that was like the width of my thumb connected to this rosemary. I mean, it's, this, it's not that big of a plant, but it's survived because it has root. It has depth of soil. Well, that's not what you see in this illustration. This, there is no depth here. The soil, uh, the soil is, is thin. It, it, it's deep enough that it can take some kind, it, it can produce some kind of uh, plant, 
but yet when the sun comes, there's no depth, and so it's scorched. So that's the second example. Then you get seed that falls among thorns. So it falls into some soil, but it falls in an area where there's a lot of stuff already growing, specifically bad stuff. Maybe it's weeds. You've come across some of those weeds in Mississippi that have the thorns on them. That kind of came to my mind as I was thinking about this. But it falls in amongst this, amongst this wild growth. It does begin to grow, but the problem is it's ultimately choked out by all the other things that are there. That's kind of what you see. And so the, the verb that's used there is that it's choked by the thorns. There is growth, but it's quickly overcome or overwhelmed by everything else. And then finally, you get the imagery of the good soil. Now, in the picture of a field, this would have been mu- much of the field. I mean, you, you don't prepare a field in ba- with bad soil. So the anticipation here is that the work is intentional and it's going to produce a good result. And what we see in this parable is that it does. This is soil that's prepared, it's well-tilled, it's ready to receive the seed that the sower throws. And the result is that it, you get these verbs here, like growing up, increasing, yielding. That's the imagery that you see. It falls on good soil, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. The good here is the focus. The seed, the sower is successful in what he intends, and the seed produces result. Now, this parable, Jesus gives it, and by itself, it doesn't mean anything. It's a story. And anybody would have heard this, could have thought, okay, that's an interesting story. Where's this going? But what you see here at the end, verse 9, and he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's something Jesus says in various portions in the Gospels. It's also something Jesus says in the letters to the churches in Revelation. Jesus, this is a phrase that is important to the Lord and important for his people post-resurrection. It's significant, and I think the fact that you see it again in Revelation and, and you, the way you see it used in the Gospels, it shows it's connected to understanding something, specifically understanding something that's being taught or something that's seen and understanding it in light of Scripture, in light of what God has revealed and what God, therefore, is doing in the midst there. See, Jesus' exhortation at the end of the parable, it hinted that the imagery had a discernible, though veiled, meaning. When Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, it's not that you can't understand a single thing about what's going on, but it's that you have to be sensitive to it. And often it's related to Scripture, usually the Old Testament, in helping to understand. So this agricultural image, it's very interesting. Agricultural imagery is used in the Old Testament. It's used regarding God's blessing. In Hosea 2.23, it's this promise that God is going to sow Israel in the land. In fact, there's so many places in Scripture where there's the imagery of God being a sower. He's the one who does the work of sowing. So it's associated with his blessing. You know what, though? It's also associated with his judgment. In Isaiah 40, 24, it talks about the way that he deals with the rulers that are against him. It says that scarcely are they sown, and then they are withered and blown away like chaff. So this imagery, it's associated with blessing. It's associated also, though, with judgment. It's also used in reference to the power of God's word to go forth and accomplish its purposes. Familiar verses to us in Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, 
so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see, it's associated with the power of God's word, but this imagery also is used as a warning towards God's people not to harden themselves against God's word. Look at Jeremiah chapter 3, or excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 4. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So we see imagery like this in the Old Testament associated with blessing, judgment, associated with the power of God's word, but also the necessity of God's people being receptive, not being hard-hearted towards God. It's got all of this Old Testament background. And so when Jesus says, let you as ears to hear, let him hear, there's a chance that someone could have discerned some meaning from this. See, your key point here is that if Jesus' hearers were sensitive to the teaching of Scripture, they would be able to gain some insight into the meaning of the parable. Most, though, even his followers, are not going to get it. They're not going to understand. They're not going to be able to make sense of this. As a result of that, then, you get Jesus taught, they're going to come to him and ask him, okay? So this, verses 10 through 12, let me read verses 10 through 12. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. So what we see here, this is Jesus's inner circle. It's his inner circle. And see that imagery again, those who are around him. Remember the imagery we looked at last week of Jesus being in the house? And that the 12 are with him and those others, and they're around him. Literally, the words that was encircling him, that was the imagery. And he said to them, they come and they ask him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." So Jesus' close followers come, and they want to understand the parables. Really what's happened, his close followers came to ask him about the parables' meaning. They haven't gotten it, and so they're coming to ask him. And he responds then, the way he responds, it highlights the distinction between those around him. Remember, we said, we looked at that imagery of Jesus calling the twelve, and how he called them that they would be with him. That's imagery Mark is going to use throughout this book, insiders and outsiders, So these are those that are the closest to him. These are the true followers of Jesus. They come and they ask him about the parable. They are going to be given understanding of the kingdom. Those who are outside are going to fail to understand. And then Jesus, to further explain this sort of dual purpose to his teaching, he's speaking in parables. His followers are going to gain insight. Those who are against him, they're actually going to continue to be furthered in their animosity towards him. They're they're not going to understand. They're going to turn even more against him. And Jesus explains sort of this dual purpose in his teaching by quoting from Isaiah, specifically Isaiah's commission. Recall in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah sees this vision of God and his glory. And he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst the people of unclean lips. 
and God forgives his sin. You get that imagery of uh, the angel taking the coal from the altar and touching him, and it says his sins are atoned for, his iniquities are forgiven. Then there is this call immediately following this work of God on Isaiah's behalf, saying, go and say to this people, or he says, who will go? And Isaiah says, I will go. And then in response to Isaiah saying, I will go send me, this is God's response to Isaiah. He says, and he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This quotation from Jesus, you can see it's not an exact one-for-one quotation. It's what we call a targum. Uh, There were uh, writings in this time period where the Hebrew was translated into Aramaic, which was sort of the common spoken language. And so what we have Jesus, Jesus' quotation, the one that Mark gives us, it's a targum. It's not an exact one-to-one quotation of the Hebrew. It's from the Aramaic. But the point is that Jesus is drawing a connection between his own ministry and the purpose of it and Isaiah's as well. Now, let's talk a little bit about this commission, Isaiah's commission and Isaiah's mission as a whole. More than any other prophet, because first of all, can we just say that like if this was your job description, when you've volunteered yourself to the Lord, how are you feeling about things? I don't think that's what Isaiah was anticipating when he, when he volunteered to go to the people and say to them what the Lord called him to say. So there is a difficulty in some sense with the burden that he's carrying here. What is, how are we to understand this? Okay, Isaiah, let's, first of all, let's focus on what does Isaiah do? Does Isaiah go and say, you're all terrible people, you have no chance of ever turning to the Lord, he's hardened your hearts and you're all terrible and you're all going to go to hell and die. Is that Isaiah's mission? Is that Isaiah's ministry? No. What does Isaiah do? I, I wish we could spend more time on it. Let me just give you some qu- a quick summation there that's, in your, um, that's in, in, in your outline there. More than any other prophet, Isaiah came to proclaim to Israel the coming salvation that would be accomplished for them and the nations. You see that in Isaiah 49 where it talks about that God's salvation goes forth. It's for Israel, but it's too small a thing that it would be just for the house of Judah and the house of Jacob. It goes forth to all the nations. You also see that through Messiah, Messiah is going to bear their sins. You get Isaiah 53, the picture that the servant of the Lord is going to bear the iniquities of the people. The imagery that he's going to be the lamb led to slaughter. He's like a lamb, he's silent before his shearers. Also, you get the promise that his kingdom is going to be established in the earth in accordance with the Old Testament promises. Isaiah is proclaiming good news all over the place to Israel. And what is their response to that proclamation of good news? They reject it. Most of them, they reject it. The result of that then is that they go into judgment. The the failure to receive the message, the good news that Isaiah brings to them, that God is going to accomplish this salvation for them through the servant of the Lord, that he will establish his kingdom, the rejection of that ultimately leads to them going into Babylonian captivity. There's judgment that comes upon them. And yet, this is so significant. Their rejection of the prophet's message meant that they came under God's judgment, which ultimately served his, God, God's purposes in the history of salvation. They go into exile. 
they return, ultimately they're occupied by the Gentiles. All of that sets up the situation, the historical situation into which the Messiah actually comes in fulfillment of those promises. So what we see here is God's plan and purpose to accomplish his will. Isaiah is sent forth to proclaim truth, to proclaim good news. There are those who will receive it. There are those who will harden themselves against it. And the proclamation of good news, for some, they are receptive to it. They receive it. For others, they reject it. They harden themselves further against it. What Jesus is saying is that, in many ways, he's picking up Isaiah's mantle. He's doing something similar. In many ways, the disciples need to understand Jesus' mission, and therefore their own mission, in light of Isaiah. Jesus is subtly hinting at, this is not going to be a great victory military parade. This is going to ultimately end in rejection and death. Remember Isaiah? Remember what happened to him? According to tradition, sawn in half and killed. So it's this subtle hint about what is coming for Jesus. Here's the key point there. Like Isaiah, Jesus will proclaim the word of the Lord as opposition increases against him. This will not thwart God's plans, however, and will ultimately be the means by which the work of salvation is accomplished. This increasing opposition, Jesus is going to continue to preach and teach. He's going to continue to talk about and proclaim the word of the Lord, and opposition is going to harden against him. The result, then, is going to be judgment that comes on well, Jesus himself is going to be rejected. He's going to be crucified, but he's going to be raised from the dead. For those who reject him, judgment comes on the unbelieving, but salvation comes for those who believe. And so this increased opposition that's going to happen to Jesus and his followers, it's ultimately part of God's plan as it was for Isaiah. Now then he goes on in verse 13 to explain the parable. He's going to explain the parable here. So let me read verses 13 through 20. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where this word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it, and bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. So Jesus, he interprets the parable for the disciples who had failed to understand it. They didn't bring any of that Old Testament imagery seemingly to this understanding, or if they did, they still don't get the full purpose of what he's saying. So he is going to explain it to them. We're going to see this next week as well. He's going to explain more parables Okay, so we're going to see him speaking these parables and explaining some of the imagery and what it means. So what we see here is they didn't pick up on this imagery, so Jesus comes and he explains it to them. And he's basically, I do think it's kind of funny that he's basically saying, you know, he's like, do you not understand this parable? If you don't understand this one, how are you going to understand any of the other ones? It's like he tried to put the cookies on the low shelf for them and they just didn't quite get it. So he's got to explain this. What we see from him in his explanation, he talks about the seed and the sower. 
The seed is the word. This is, the seed and the sower are the word and the one who proclaims the word. That's, the, that's what the seed and the sower are referring to. Now, who's the one who's been proclaiming the word? It's Jesus, okay? So we need to think of this. We need to start off thinking of this in its immediate context. We are going to draw some application out of this, but let's focus in on the context. Jesus is the one who has been currently in his ministry sowing the word, the proclamation of the kingdom amongst the people. So that's the immediate context here. The soils then are those who hear the word and how they receive it. That's really what the soil pictures. The ones who hear the word and the way in which they receive it or I guess in another way don't receive it. Okay, that's kind of what the soils represent. Okay, so let's look at these sort of four categories that Jesus describes here. The first are those who are hardened towards the word. Remember the imagery is of the the seed that falls along the path. What was that path? Think about that soil. Walking on it, it's packed down, it's hard. So the imagery here is referring to those who are hardened towards the word. They have a resistance to it, just like soil that's unbroken up and is packed down and hard. These people have a resistance to the word. So the seed goes out and it falls, but then in each of these cases, the negative ones, there's a hindrance to the seed taking root. Okay? Specifically here, it's, the hindrance is Satan, referred to uh, using the imagery of the birds. Because of these people's hardness of heart, Satan is able to come and take the word away. The word doesn't have a chance to take any root. They're hardened against it. Now, I think John Piper is helpful here. He, uses, he says there's basically three ways that Satan uh, comes and takes the word away. The first, he says, is inattention. Inattention. That our hardness of heart, it keeps us from giving focus to the word. From being able to receive it. Inattention is an element of hardness of heart, specifically in those who are unbelieving, but even in, amongst those of us who are believing. Inattention. Then he talks about the idea of ill will. Ill will is another means by which Satan is able to come and keep the word, for, take the word from us in that sense. You think about this in terms of feeling, feelings against God or others. Feelings against God's word itself. You, you re- refusing to receive, you're looking for ways to critique it or um, wor- like refusing to receive it and recognizing its authority, disagreement with interpretation. This can happen a lot when there is animosity towards other believers. It can happen when there's animosity towards the one reading the word or proclaiming the word. Kids, can I just say to you, be careful that this doesn't happen within your own homes. That frustration or anger with your parents leads you to reject the word of the Lord that they're attempting to read to you or talk to you about. We have a tendency to do this. Husbands, don't do this with your wives. Wives, don't do this with your husbands. Don't, don't, fail, don't have ill will against a person that keeps you from being able to receive the word of the Lord. The third thing Piper mentions is ignorance. Ignorance. People, they literally cannot enter into and understand the goodness and glory of God. They see others enjoying God's goodness, enjoying his glory, reveling in his glory, and they just think that's weird, or what are they doing? There's an ignorance of it. Again, this is in an unbelieving context. So inattention, ill will, ignorance. I think, I think those are three good ways to think about the ways that Satan can keep the word from taking root. 
The result then, again, is that the word is taken away and it bears no fruit. That's the result of the seed falling on the soul, or the word being proclaimed to someone who is hardened against it. In many ways then, and well, we'll come back, I'll come back to that in just a second. Let's look at the second thing. The second thing. The second soil is the rocky soil, the ones that fall on the rocky ground. It refers to those who receive the word superficially. They receive it superficially. There's initial receptivity. It even says they receive it with joy. They agree with it. Yes, that's true. But what happens is that there's no root to it. It doesn't, it doesn't take root. And that imagery is so strong in the New Testament. You see it in Colossians chapter 2. You see it in Ephesians, the idea of something being rooted and established. That actually, you get that imagery in the Old Testament as well. It's found in some intertestamental Jewish writings that that was the goal of the, of, of the word, that it was to root and establish, to make people strong. And yet you don't have that with this person. They receive the word superficially. Lip service to it, maybe even some joy in the moment when it's proclaimed. And yet what happens then is there's a hindrance to them. Trials, trials. Specifically here, Jesus mentions tribulation and persecution. And the imagery that's used there is of the sun that bakes and cooks and withers the plant. It has no root. It has no source of life, no deep source there. So the imagery, the two words Jesus mentions, tribulation first. It's trouble that inflicts distress. That's just behind the Greek word there. Trouble that inflicts distress. And it seems to be more random here. Tribulation just happens in life at times. We face difficulty from circumstances that we're in, from people that we're dealing with. But what's anticipated here is that when we receive the word, that there's going to be times in life where we are going to face tribulation and difficulty. It just happens. But also as well, there's persecution. Persecution here carries the idea of a program or process designed to oppress. It's intentional. So for those who receive the word, they're going to experience both of those. They're going to experience opposition that sort of just happens in the moment based on circumstances, and they're also going to experience dealing with actual organized systemic issues that seek to oppress them or seek to restrict the proclamation of the word or to literally discourage and overwhelm and silence those who would bear the word and would carry it forward. So we need to see that it's these things that Jesus says those trials of the tribulations and persecutions as a result of the word, what this means then is that this person, the word never takes true root in them and the sun withers it, the persecution, it withers. And you need to see that that imagery. I think that's so significant because opposition can cause people to fall away. Opposition to the word. It's one thing for us to all sit in here and hear things and agree together and sing. It's quite another thing to go out there into the world and live in the midst of that difficulty and deal with the tribulation of circumstances or maybe the overt persecution that can come. By God's grace, we've been preserved from a lot of this, but we may not be for much longer. Are we going to be people who wither and fall away? Are we going to be those who are rooted and established? So the result, again, is that the word, it never takes root. It's withered. It's scorched. All right, the third thing is that it refer, it's the, the seed that falls amongst the, sor- the thorns. Those who receive the word amidst other things. They hear the word, but it doesn't really have a place of prominence or authority. There's a lot going on, and it's just kind of another thing that's in and amongst there. The hindrance, then, are the concerns of the world. Concerns. 
the, pictured here by the thorns. Jesus refers to three specific things. First, he talks about the cares of the world. Although there's some receptivity to the word, there are things that are more important. The cares or anxieties or worries of the world. Okay, the, the worries of life. Those things actually take a place of prominence over and against the word. These, those things are more important. He also mentions the deceitfulness of riches. Yes, there's receptivity to the word, but in reality, there are things that are more valuable than the word. And it's deceitful because it's a lie. Because ultimate value is not found in the things of the world. And then finally, he mentions the desires for other things. The word is received, but there are other things that are actually viewed to, be give, to give greater satisfaction, to truly satisfy the desires of our hearts. These things, what they, what they end up doing is they end up choking the word. That's the result. The word is choked out by these other things. And what we need to recognize that this, th- these Images, the soil imagery that comes to mind, Jesus is trying to teach us something about the ways people relate to and live within the world. If you go back and you think about those who are hardened towards the word, in many ways, they simply openly side with the world. They openly side with the world. They're hardened and resistant to the word. Those who receive the word superficially, what happens is they relent under the pressures of the world. They relent under the pressures of the world. They may have initially received the word with joy, but it's just too hard to stay out there and be faithful. And so they become apostate or they fall into despair or unbelief. And then finally, you have those who receive the word again amidst other things. What happens then is they ultimately follow after the course of the world. They, there's some receptivity to the world, but it's choked out as they follow after the course of the world. All of these three soils stand in contrast to the good soil. Point four there, are referring to those who receive the word in faith. The word is heard, but more than just being heard, it's received. Its authority is recognized. It's submitted to. There's a recognition that this is not just something to hear, but it actually affects me. Can I just encourage you, young person that's in here, one of the most significant things that can happen in your life is to understand that the word that you've heard talked about in Sunday school, that you've heard preached in church, that you've heard your parents discuss and read, when you have that moment where you realize this is for you, when you're sitting with your Bible and you're reading it and you realize the Lord is speaking to you, That is receptivity to the word. That is being good soil. It's not just something out here. It's God's personal communication to me. He's speaking to me. And so what we see here then is the word there, it's received. They accept it. That's actually the the word you could translate, that word where it says those who hear it and accept it. You could translate it, receive it. It's the imagery of good tilled soil receiving the seed. It goes into the soil As a result, then, it takes root. And and because it takes root and begins to grow, it's prominent. It's the prominent thing. When you think about, like I told you, we did these raised beds. We, We put good soil in, and we planted plants that are prominent there. There's not other stuff growing in there. The focus is on the good plants there in the good soil. And when weeds start to pop up, you pull them out. 
so that the, it, the nutrients aren't taken from the plants that are there as they intended. And so the result then, because there's receptivity, because the, the, the seed takes root, it grows and fruit is born. There's productivity that results from it. Uh, that's the result. The fruit is born in the life of the recipient. The word does its work and it produces fruit ultimately to God's glory. And the whole 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, it's probably referencing that it, it happens differently in different people. God works differently in different people. And there's things that are more obvious in the lives of others, but there's also the receptivity to the one who is doing the growth. The one who is more receptive, the one who is more reliant upon, that's the one that God can use more, can do the work in and through. These people do not side with the world. They do not relent under its pressures, and they do not love its pleasures They know God. They know the God who sows the word, and they seek to worship him in the world and invite others to do so. That's the imagery here. Productivity, fruitfulness in the world. Key point. The parable serves as both a warning and an exhortation. It's functioning on both of those levels. It's a warning and an exhortation to the followers of Jesus, inviting them to receive his word and to participate in its success in the world. Again, think in this immediate context there. Jesus has been proclaiming the word of the Lord, focusing in on the kingdom. It has been received by some. It's been rejected by others. The parable is helping explain some of that rejection and explaining how it's working in those who receive it. It's a warning to the disciples, but it's also an exhortation to them. They get to participate in the work of growth and fruitfulness that God is doing in them and also in the world. And so this is what's the focus here in this immediate context. It's encouragement ultimately to his followers. But what we want to do also is pull out and think about this imagery and apply it in our situation as well. There's secondary application of this. So a couple of concluding thoughts. The first is that the parable of the sower invites us to consider our own receptivity to the word of the Lord. It's one of the great values of this parable is that it gives us imagery to think about ourselves. Now, from the perspective of belief and unbelief, it's very strong and it's very stark. But even within the lives of believers, I think this imagery is helpful because we have time periods where even as believers, we're hard-hearted towards the, word, towards the, the Lord and his word. Or we have times where we receive it for a period of time, but then it doesn't take any root in us. Or we have times where we receive the word of the Lord, but the cares of the world, they choke it away. From a belief-unbelief perspective, if you're here and you're not a believer, or, or you're struggling with some of these things, you need to recognize the reality that there is judgment associated with rejection of the Lord and his word. Because it ultimately leads to rejection of Jesus as Savior. What you need is to receive the word of the Lord. You need to receive the good news about Jesus, that he's paid the penalty for your sins. It's it's a full and complete payment. You don't add to it. You cannot take away from it. As believers here, we can ask this question, though, what are the tendencies of our own hearts? Where is there hardness in us because of sin? We've all experienced that, where we've been here in church, or we've been in Bible study, or we've been in something in our marriage, and maybe our spouse tries to share something with us, and we just don't receive it, because either we're, we've got some sin in our own life, or we've sinned towards them, or we're angry, something like that. There's hardness because of sin. The way you deal with that hardness is through confession, 
and then ultimately accepting that payment has been made for your sin. Full payment has been made. You come back to that truth. You come back to that position that you have in Christ. That's how we deal with the hardness of hardness, the confession of sin, the acceptance of forgiveness that has already been extended to you. How do we deal then with superficiality? That's, that, I would imagine that's a lot of us. That's, that's my tendency. Yeah, I, well, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. So great. Good stuff. The way we deal with superficiality, I was thinking about this for myself. What overcomes superficiality for me is meditation on Scripture. It's memory work. It's committing Scripture to memory. It's prayer. It's where His Word, that's where it begins to settle in and take root. Literally, when it's committed to memory, when we focus on it, when we pray through texts of Scripture, it's how we deal with superficiality. And then finally, distractions. How do we deal with the distractions and the concerns of the world? We cast our cares upon God, and we also give thanks in all things. In dealing with those concerns of the world, we've got to become a people who consistently cast our cares upon the Lord, that we bring our request to Him so that the peace of God may guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, and be thankful. Be thankful for what we have. Thank Him for His goodness to us. And then we also need to be aware of our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We do have enemies as we live our lives. We have an enemy in the world, but Jesus has overcome the world. We have an enemy in our flesh, but our flesh is crucified with Christ. It need not have power over us. We have an enemy in the devil, and yet the Lord Jesus has overcome him and defeated him through his resurrection. He has no power over us. So be encouraged. With the parable of the sower, let's consider our own receptivity to the word. And then finally this, point two there. The parable of the sower reminds us that it is Christ who bears fruit in us by the power of his word. You don't bear fruit by just grinning and bearing fruit. It doesn't work like that. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Think about the parable of the sower itself. The land of itself can bear no fruit. It's simply receptive to the word that is sown. What ultimately produces the fruit, in in Jesus' example here, it's not the branch, it's what comes from the vine. In the same way, we are dependent upon Christ, the power of his word and his spirit to produce fruit in us. Questions, friends. Are we desirous that God would produce fruit in us? And then, if we're not seeing it, are we really reliant upon him, or are we trying to do it ourselves? I think a way to answer those questions is just to look at our lives and say that our either resistance or receptivity to his word shows really the answer to that question, to those questions. Are we receptive to his word or are we resistant to his word? May God grant that his word would take root in us, that we might be a people producing fruit for his glory and for the good of others. Let's pray and give him thanks. Father, we do thank you for your word And Lord, we confess, even for us as believers, we are tempted, we are prone to have hard hearts. We're prone to be discouraged. We're prone to be distracted by the concerns of this world. Father, thank you that your word can take root in us. Father, would you grant that we would be a receptive people, receptive to your word? 
Father, would you grant that, um, you, would you deliver us from hardness of heart through confession and acceptance? Lord, would you deliver us um, ultimately from distraction? Would you deliver us from the concerns of this world, Lord, and from superficiality through meditation on your word, Lord, and through thanksgiving and casting our cares upon the Lord Jesus? We give you thanks for these things and thank you that you do not leave us or forsake us, but you stay at work in us as one who trims the vines, as one who cares for the fields, you are at work in your people. Ultimately, that we might be fruitful. May we bear fruit for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.